Welcome to the Deep Dive into Agile Marketing Podcast with your host, John Cass. Together, we'll take a closer look at the ins and outs of marketing through an agile lens. You'll learn from interviews with top agile thought leaders and practitioners and gain fresh new insights for your journey. Let's get ready to dive in. Welcome to the Deep Dive into Agile Marketing with John Cass. I'm your host, John Cass, here in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, I'll be interviewing Anthony Coppedge, Principal Agile Digital Sales Global Transformation Lead at IBM. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. We're going to cover your story with Agile Marketing, but I wanted to start off by getting up to speed on where IBM is. Your podcast will be actually the third interview I've done with an IBMer. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, tell us what's uh, what's going on with IBM and, uh, and Agile Marketing. So there was a mandate years ago to say, what would it look like to transform marketing to become more agile, to apply the principles of agility to where we could be much more exploratory of and even more um, innovative through the ability for teams to decide what the priority should be, for teams to figure out how to experiment, for teams to understand what it would look like to create, deliver value, and then to share that across the organization and scale the learnings. So that's kind of a high level way of describing where the, the genesis was. And we had a a CMO, chief marketing officer, who used the phrase agile to the core. And so it was this idea of, is it agility? Because the word agile is should be described, I think, as the thing you do in terms of the way you you are as an organization, not the, not the task, not the practices, not the ceremonies, not even the framework of Scrum, Safe, Kanban, Lean, whatever. It's, it's these ideas that we want to take the principles of respect, openness, courage, empathy, trust, and apply those with the values or those those five values, excuse me, and then the principles of are we self-directed? Are we experimental? Do we have the ability to change the culture by changing who we are, building that? So there's this very inclusive way of saying we look at ourselves as having the answers rather than looking up to the leaders are going, you tell us what to do. So now in this model, the leaders focus on how do you get stuff out of the way of the marketer or the seller? How do you remove those impediments and how do we provide the skills, resources and processes that need to be adjusted or reflected or even destroyed and rebuilt entirely new that we, we want to deliver value. So just because we used to work one way, we don't assume it'll always work that way. And so it's very much that iterative process of agility is where it started. Well, that's great. Um, so, what what was some of the mechanics of that? I mean, did it? You know, how many? I've heard the you know story of about five thousand marketers mm-hmm. using it. But I, I think what interests me with with IBM or any of these large companies is how you know it, it's okay to deploy agile marketing in a smaller company or a smaller uh, team or division. But how do you deploy it across? many different divisions and many different teams. And and sure. so it'd be interesting to hear that. I mean, I reflect on David Quinn at EMC years ago. Now it's, now it's owned by Dell and how they had a coaching unit. You know, could, could you give some sort of insights for people, you know, when you're working at a large company, how IBM's model can help them? Yeah, my, my, my former boss, Andrew Burroughs, who I know has been on the podcast, a former with IBM, Andrew, I would come to him with all these ideas. Hey, I think we should. And I think we should. And Andrew always asked me the same question. Does it scale? Because when you are working at an enterprise level, it has to be able to scale 
across and through. So it's not good enough to say that's a good one-off idea. You have to be able to think about, is that scalable? Because people, John, as we know, don't scale, right? Yeah, I don't scale, you don't scale, none of our listeners scale, but the systems and processes we use can scale. So what we were figuring out is what's scalable. So we wanna operationalize, and this is how I describe a lot of what I do, operationalize the creation and delivery of value at scale for the benefit of the org- benefit the organization's clients. So everything we do is this client centric. How do we help make it better for them? And because of that, you put in systems and processes and even some practices. So it's a hybrid model of different agile frameworks, but I would call it a model, not a framework precisely because it doesn't follow anyone in particular. And there's a lot of variance in that in that you want to have the flexibility for the teams to, to self-choose. What we're doing is putting some constraints around that to say constraints really are the way we understand we're doing it together. And so one team might have, let's say, a, a stand-up every day and they they come together and they talk about what they're working on. Another team might decide, and I've got teams that do this, hey, let's put that through an automation bot in Slack and let's ask, hey, is there anything worth sharing that's going well or not going well that we would benefit from either swarming on to try to figure out or share because if this doesn't work for me, maybe you know how to solve it or I figured out something working really well, it would benefit everybody on the team to know this. And you could do that asynchronously. So it doesn't have to be a meeting. So now that's done with you know bots and that might be a daily bot or a bi-weekly bot or something. The, the, the key is not to put people into the pigeonholed framework of, oh, you got to do a stand-up every day. You don't even have to do a stand-up if it doesn't serve your team. What we do want to understand is how are you communicating, coordinating, collaborating right because if you can do that then you have to be able to do that between leaders between teams and between how we operate with our business partners and clients so how you go to market is very much based on how you operationalize the creation and delivery of value and that word is not to be you know misconstrued value is not what's in it for us value is what's in it for them where them is the prospect and the client. We serve them. We serve the business partners. We serve those. It's a service-oriented mindset because if I do that and we do this at scale, then we're all going in the same direction. The way we go, the products we lead with, the go-to-market strategies, the channelization, um, all of that can be very fluid across teams because you're not dictating any of that. You're simply saying, are we aligned? And the way we've done that is I've used OKRs for it, which is objectives and key results to say, we have goals internally and in quotas and all that, but but we will accomplish that when we create and deliver value for the prospects and clients. In other words, the byproduct of our success is coming for, directly from serving someone else and their success. That's easy to scale because respect, openness, courage, empathy, and trust, those scale right? Anybody can apply those five values. Any team can choose to be self-directed. Any team can choose to be experimental, right? Every team should have clarity of purpose and alignment of that purpose. So if that's true, that that completely scales and that operationally scales all the way up. So throughout the organization, there is no scale limit on that. So it's very easy in that sense, John, to, to say we could scale. The hard part is getting people to get that mindset because there's a belief or a way of working that they're used to of it's about delivering activity and it's about producing outputs and deliverables. And we're like, should we do those things? Yes. Is that the point? No. <laughs> and that's a mindset shift, right? To get people out of outputs into outcomes and specifically not just business outcomes for us, but client outcomes. That That's where the rubber meets the road with agility.
Well, that makes a lot of sense, Anthony. And I, I think that's one of the aspects of the marketing profession, right? And I've talked about this many times with other folks in the community where it's it's not all one way. Uh, in development, I'm, I'm sure it's not all one way either, but <laughs> it's kind of closer to that model, right? There's, there's different dependencies that marketers have. And so in having that ability to pick what works for your team is really helpful. I also like that that strategy that you have at IBM where you've got those core values and that's what's really important and and helping Correct. to support them you know so how do you how do you do that though i mean how do you how do you both sort of spread the message evangelize and and get people to to do that across multiple uh departments how do you i mean do you do you have people uh, have you had people in the past or people there who are sort of the coaching model that EMC had under David Quinn? Or I, I yes. also think back to, yeah. to Christopher Barger. Uh, this this isn't agile marketing, but Christopher Barger back in 2005 for General Motors was doing mm-hmm. social media deployment. And he had a central coaching team for social media. And because of the, the bankruptcy, it was actually, so new back then. Yeah. Yeah. He, he actually would train people up and then he would, you know, laughingly say, Oh, I fired them, but he would place them in other uh, divisions with other mid-level managers. And, and, and then they would sort of be the resource for those folks. So how do you, how do you break through those barriers of the different divisions and, and break down mm-hmm. some of those cultural barriers, if you will, across a large company like IBM. So I can't speak to before 2019 when I came in, but uh, you know, yeah. Andrew Burroughs could, and I think has spoken to some of that in previous uh, podcast, but there is a, there is a great deal of emphasis on alignment with business outcomes. And we just have to say, if that's the business outcome, what's in it for the client? And it really is that simple. It's that simple, but it's also that hard because most businesses are focused on a quarterly recurring a cadence of revenue re- review, QBRs, quarterly business reviews. And they're they're trying to figure out their revenue and profitability. And, and what we're trying to say is we will achieve revenue and profitability by focusing on how to better, faster, and more uh, efficiently create and deliver value so that there is revenue and profitability, right? So again, is this a realignment away from hitting the target for the sake of the target to saying, did we achieve something that helps someone else achieve something? Did we serve in such a way that they're starting to see value? And that's a lagging indicator because you actually have to go through that process and then have some metrics over time to know. But we experiment so frequently and so quickly that you can know a lot more than you think you could in a, in a matter of days or weeks. So you don't have to wait till the end of the quarter to know these things. And that's really one of the hallmarks of agility is that ability to be um, relatively quick. Speed is not the point. It's just a natural byproduct. Uh, velocity is a byproduct of iterative, consistently frequent work. And, and because we work that way and that scales because people can all understand that, the real trick is getting to the leadership at that space and saying, we want to help you win. And who wants to say no to that, right? So all the executives and management, we want to help you win. We just have to reframe a little bit of what win can look like. So we guess it does include these targets you're responsible for. And there's a way to win that goes way beyond our ability to sell enough stuff or to market enough stuff. Now we're talking about, are we demonstrating and creating demonstrable value? 
And when you do, you will market and sell well. Like it's it, it's this idea, right, of shifting. And so I do that through creating an alignment, what I call clarity with alignment. And I, again, use objectives and key results for that. So in my tenure here, I say, what are the things we're doing to create deliver value for the client? And we describe that. And how will we know we're making that progress over time? And what would we measure and try to understand? And how frequently can we do that? And, and what are the risks we're willing to take, the small risks rather than these big bets? And break it up into bite-sized tests, A-B test and multivariate tests, which is marketing does this all day long, right? So this is very natural hand-in-glove kind of fit. But what we have to do is get buy-in to show people why, not what, why. Because if they say, oh, wait, are you, are you, I've had, I've had, I've had executives say at this company and others, right, where I've done this before, uh, well, we have stand-ups. And we have retrospectives. We're agile, right? I'm like, I don't know, man. I go to McDonald's, but I've never been a French fry. You know, it's just like that doesn't do it, right? The activity doesn't make it so. The change in mindset, behavior, and then outcomes makes it so. And so the hard part of that is that transformational mindset shift because there, there, is, a, there is a way of thinking that goes with the way of doing. If you just try to change the behavior, the moment that person moves to a different role or that leader's no longer there, you're going to follow the behavior of the next leader or the next team group, but whatever. And your behaviors are sporadic. But if you change someone's mind, if you can show them a better way, then regardless of where they go, that way is going to stick with them a lot more and their behaviors will follow the mindset shift. And so that's a big part of the coaching. For years, we did have whole teams of coaches. That's how I was originally brought in. Um, and so there was this focus on let's just coach people, but you have to go beyond that. A coach should be kind of like uh, Mary Poppins or Nanny McPhee. You're originally not wanted, but needed. And then you want to be needed and no longer uh, or wanted and no longer needed. That's mm. kind of the idea. And so the, the coach shouldn't be there 20 years doing something with the same group of people. You're not coaching very well if that's the case. So we're coaching for people to coach others. We're coaching for people to understand and then go replicate. And we call that um, our focus we have around it is there's coaching and then there's the discipline. And the discipline is when the coaching has led to the discipline. So now I don't need the coach to remind me or show me. I now understand that. Now the coach can take us to another level and go deeper or higher. And and eventually you get mastery, right? Think Shu Hari and martial arts where the idea of Shu is do exactly this. Um, ha is adapt from the basics and then Ri is mastery. That's the same concept. A, a, a coach should should transition to help someone else when someone's at that at that mastery stage. You know, I, we talked about, you talked about uh, outcomes here. And I, I think the way that I um, describe that is it's really about marketers being able to do real marketing and build operations. So I've seen circumstances and companies have these situations where there's a lack of understanding what marketing can do, maybe from sales or, you know, finance or, or even, mm -hmm. you know, the key leaders in, in the company. So I think that um, that focus on, on outcomes is really about doing real marketing, you know, being able to do it rather than getting knocked off kilter on what the real plan should be to provide 
the most value uh, to the company. I mean, did you have you seen circumstances like that? And when you've gone through that coaching uh, incidents with folks who are getting up to speed with the mindset, has it enabled and emboldened them to go back to the folks and the other stakeholders to ex- explain, hey, yeah, what are you all suggesting here might add some value and you know and some great outputs, but real and maybe even that target. But actually, if we just hold the course, then you know we're actually going to uh, not only do amazingly well in in, in beating and hitting the targets, but we're going to go beyond that, and that's and that's what the promise is. Yes, and, and and I think the way you frame that, and this is good for the listeners to take this back to your teams and your bosses, is to say, hey, how do we ask better questions by looking at the data and the insights that we're getting, not how do we come up with better answers. So in marketing and in sales, and I think marketing sales should be tied at the hip. They may be two different organizations within the company, you know, behind closed doors, but the customer and the prospect can never feel that, right? So we, I think there's a good case to be made for that alignment right there and shared objectives, discrete key results, et cetera. But you want to be able to ask better questions. And the easiest way to ask better questions is to have something you can point to and talk about. So that means you have to make agile marketing makes the work prioritization and the workflow visible. And it's outcome focused work workflow prioritization not just output focus, not did we do a thing, what happened because we did a thing. So there's a much longer time to understanding impact rather than saying, did it make it to done by the end of the week? Yep. Was it useful? I don't know, right? <laughs> I did a thing, but I got I actually have to see how it performs to know if it was useful. And that's the whole point of learning. We, we, we know we don't know, but we know we can find out. And so what we want to do is ask better questions. And the easiest way to do that, John, is to visualize the work, be outcome focused on your workflow prioritization, the things you choose to do. Because right now, every company has exactly the perfectly designed systems to keep getting what they're getting. The question is, do you want that? If you want to do better than that, then you have to change the things you're doing. How do we do that? We make it visible and outcome focused. What happens when you do that, John? You improve the quality, the speed, the predictability, the transparency, and the adaptability for the marketing teams to deliver that value, right? So if you're not visualizing it and representing it and looking at prioritization, because anything that makes it to your done column was prioritized. How do I know you did it instead of something else, right? So by definition, anything that makes it to the done column is prioritized. What I recommend teams do is in your done column for every card or piece of work or, or chunk of work or you know checklist or whatever you've got there, um, however you do your done columns, whatever makes it to the, you know, that yes, we succeeded in accomplishing this. You should ask, was this client facing high value work? And by the way, high value work can only be client facing in marketing and in sales because we exist to serve them, not to serve internally. Do we serve internally? Of course we do. Is that why we're there? No, because ultimately we're all aligned, should all be aligned to what makes it better for the prospect and the client. So when you focus like that, guess what happens? Now you have the ability to say, hey, we aligned on this outcome and we've understood by measuring performance and asking questions and capturing feedback and validating the metrics with anecdotal data, i.e. feedback, 
scores, NPS, sentiment ratings, whatever, that we can say the numbers say one thing, but our feedback says another. And here's the delta. Here's the gap. Let's go ask better questions to ask. Why is that? What could we do about that? What would we change? What could we test differently? And now you're thinking much more holistically. You're not thinking about the thing. You're thinking about the outcome from doing the thing or from not doing the thing. So I want to understand how better to prioritize work that adds client value. So in your in your done column, whenever you get to the place of what did we accomplish this week and you're reviewing that with your teams and individually, you should be able to say, was this high value client facing? Was it good value and not necessarily client facing? Like it's a thing we needed to do internally, but it's not client facing. And or was it low value? And if you just put those little labels on there, you would end up with a list for a team of however many things got done and then some way to calculate that, even a proxy measurement that says 33% of everything we did was low value. 50% was good value and just the remainder, you know, less than 20% was high value. Gosh, that's backwards. We should spend more time delivering high value client facing than we should the other stuff. Some things are necessary steps. It's not that you can always do that. But if you don't understand where the time goes and how you're prioritizing against value instead of just deliverables, how will you ever know what you could accomplish? You won't. So by visualizing that and focusing on the outcome from doing those things and then measuring over a period of time, it gives you the data to go back and ask better questions, including of your sponsors and ask, hey, I know you want X. We're learning about Y. Y seems way better than X. So we could continue down the path and hit X at a lower rate than we think we originally thought it was gonna be, or we can pivot and go do this much better thing before the quarter ends. Are you curious with us to go see what's possible? And that's a game changer because that's the trust, the empowerment and the psychological safety of those doing the work to ask those kind of questions because you're talking about the thing and not the leader. I'm talking about the opportunity or the issue, not the person. And by doing so, I'm being objective and less subjective and I'm taking the emotion out and I'm making it safe for us to ask hard questions because conflict isn't bad. Only unhealthy conflict is bad. And we need to make it psychologically safe for conflict to be how we innovate and how we improve. Well, I, I think what you are getting to here is, you know, the core of what marketing is, which is innovation, right? And how you manage that process. So I think that's really what's partly interesting about how agile marketing can help marketers to, to do better in their conversations with themselves and with their teams, but then also more, I think more importantly, the stakeholders in, in really illustrating how testing, which, you know, even if it's not a new product, but it's testing what's working and what's not working on the marketing perspective, but all what is working in terms of uh, not working in terms of a product. I think that, I think you really get to the core of what uh, uh, marketing is all about and helping to, uh, to explain that to folks. <laughs> Absolutely. It's why I see agile marketing then is a visible outcome-focused workflow prioritization for doing what? Improving the quality, speed, predictability, transparency, and adaptability of marketing teams. It's why I say that. Because if we're not those things, then are we doing a great job? Will we ever know? Because we might do a great job for the things we're setting as targets, but what if our targets are low? Let me give you an example of this. I had a team that was hitting about 120% of what they said they could do 
pretty regularly. And so they were always in the green, you know, the nice color green looks good until I started going, what causes them to do this? And I was very curious, how did they do that? And you know what I found? A, they were being very clever and very smart and very communicative. That was all very helpful. But what I found was, this is a true story. They were literally figuring out how to work around the broken systems and processes in order to achieve. And so they were overachieving by being clever and being smart. But was that good? Should that have been green where green is good? No, should have been red. Why? Because what we should have identified was how do we help you not have to work around broken systems and processes? How do we have to, what would happen if we freed you up to not do the low value effort in order to achieve high value results? If we allowed you to, if we made it possible for you and got things out of your way so that you did high value effort, how much higher value could the results be? What could the outcomes be if we got that stuff out of your way? So 120% was actually bad. Why? Because it could have been 250, 300%, right? That would have been good. So you can't just look at the, at the metrics and the dashboards and look for the color and the percentage and assume something. You have to actually go ask the question, why is that? How is that? What's going on? And if you're not asking those questions, I promise you, you're missing opportunity to stop the stupid. Get those things out of the way that are frustrating people and help them be more successful. When you do that, you will build that psychological safety. You will make it possible for people to speak up and share things that are not pleasant, but are true and need to be addressed. You will make it possible for people to have a greater sense of experimentation. Why? Because now you're more focused on what could we do rather than what are we not allowed to do, right? You just take the lid off of all that and you empower your people. You, you As then the book, uh, Turn the Ship Around, David Marquette says, you push control down, you have assurance of technical competence, and you have a clarity of mission. So if I want to delegate responsibility down to my teams, guess what I do, John? I delegate responsibility with authority. So whose authority do my teams work out of? Mine. And in some cases, my bosses. Because if we're asking them to do it, shouldn't they have the same authority to do it that we do? Yes. So you shouldn't just delegate the responsibility. For them to truly be empowered teams, you got to give them the authority to make it happen. So let's move on. Tell me a little bit about your story with with Agile. How did uh, how did you start off? How did you get into this uh, this process and uh, and and your path uh, to where you are now? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, a bunch of happy accidents. In two thousand nine is when I started because I worked for a software as a service company. I was employee ninety nine. I remember the CEO hired me, and, and they had a. Uh, a set of teams, agile teams, they were using Scrum for software development. And they had this 60 foot wide, 10 foot tall magnetic whiteboard I've talked about before that is just this beautiful visualization of everything they were prioritizing. And I, and it just felt so different when I went into their room versus the way we worked in marketing. Marketing felt like hair on fire and reactive. And here these guys were so, and gals were so calm and just it, things just flowed. And so I had never been exposed to it and I started asking questions. And then I experimented with it, learned about lean, learned about Six Sigma, learned uh, about safe, Kanban, less, dad, scrum. I mean, pick it, right? So I just, I went full bore learning about all of those things and came back away with, well, I think we can apply a hybrid model. I think we can take pieces that work well, but in a sales and marketing team, you're going to need to be responsive not reactive. So unlike a software development team, which unless there's something blowing up and it's a break fix situation, um, 
they're pretty head down and they just focus on the work in front of them. That is not the world of sales and marketing. There is some planned work. We do planned work, but there's also the interrupt driven work. And it's those, it, what I had to learn was how do you balance those two? So I learned how to do that. Um, that's how I apply agile marketing is in a hybrid model now. And I do it with agile sales too. And in fact, I believe we have agile sales with agile marketing, agile marketing with agile sales, not agile marketing and agile sales. So by sharing objectives and having discrete key results, we're all moving towards serving the same prospects and clients. And we're trying to do so in a unified way. And this really scales well because it's just as true for a two-person team and a very small startup in a garage. And this works well at an enterprise because a clarity with alignment always wins. And so I really focus hard on that because I want our people to see the value of that. It's not free. There is some effort we put in, but the return on that effort is exponential. So it's worth that effort because for that small amount of uh, focus, we get a lot of return. And, and then the other way I sell that, John, just for the listeners here, people are like, well, how do you get that in, you know, bought in? How do you get people to buy in? And the answer for me is very simple. I said, show me how many meetings you're having talking about the status of things. John, how many meetings did you have when you, you know, five, 10 years ago when you started, you know, on this stuff, uh, maybe longer, you know, that was status update. And, and, and the answer for most companies is it's hours and hours a week. I mean, you have your own story there, John. I'm curious to hear what percentage of your time used to be status updates. Well, I, I can certainly remember one instance when I was working at a, an agency and I was uh, sort of head of operations. So we we certainly spend a lot of time on uh, giving those status updates. But I think one of the ways that we got around it when we started implementing Agile was to do some of the individual team discussions beforehand so that when we actually did have to go to those meetings and give the update, there wasn't really as much to discuss. So I think we cut down on the amount of, of reporting that we did. And if we did have a conversation, it was more about learning in those, you know, those overall so team meetings. Pre-Agile, post-Agile for you. I'm just curious because I think our listeners, because I want to talk about my experience too, and I'm curious what our listeners would think about this, but what percentage of your effort was focused on wrangling the information and getting the information and having status updates and building the PowerPoint decks and all that? What, what, what amount of effort in a, any given week, percent of your time uh, was that pre and post agile? Yeah, I mean, I think I think back to that agency, and I think it was a low percentage. We we certainly took maybe half a day or something to do, which is kind of a lot of time, especially when we could have been working on client stuff. But then right, after, that's ten percent of a work week, right? Right, there. right. Yeah, and 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 then after using Agile, we were able to. I mean, the the biggest impact on it was that we were able to focus on the work. I was also able to negotiate, do do a better job of working with the clients so that we were able to explain to folks why we couldn't do work immediately and why we sometimes went through the process of, yeah, changing things and doing that work immediately. And I think as a result of that, we were then able to cut down those uh, reporting meetings substantially to the time that it was supposed to be allocated. So I think, you know, I think we definitely cut down the amount of time by using that process. Plus, I also recall the team members coming back and saying, hey, this is great. I'm actually in a position for the first time since I've been in this job to be able to 
not to have stuff dumped on me all the time, but to be able to manage uh, the flow of work that's coming in. Gotcha. John, I think one of the things that's helpful when you're talking about, well, how do you get started or how do you scale it or how do you get buy-in is I have to figure out how to remove a pain first. So one of the big pains that I've seen with teams and managers is just the sheer volume of time to prepare for a meeting, do the meeting, go out there, do a status update, post something, and then it's, it's already dated by the time it's published. And so there's this huge lag between where we actually are and what people think we are. And that time spent is such low value work. What I have found is that depending on the teams in marketing and sales, it's it's on average 25 to 35%, sometimes higher of low value prep type work where they're just doing the status updates. They're just keeping the status updated. They're just having a meeting because someone wants to know where things are. And it's just so low value. And so that's basically, you know, 25% to 30% of a week gone, just gone from your ability to deliver actual client value. Well, what we do is we say, we're going to eliminate all status update meetings, literally all of them. So we will have the ability to have a showcase to represent where we are to our stakeholders, but that's not a status update. That's a progress update with examples of what our measurable progress looks like and where they need to be aware. And if there's any actions we need them to take as stakeholders. And on average, that takes about 5%, 3% of the time. I mean, it is a massive decrease to do that because we just gotten rid of 30% of their calendars freed up like overnight. And when I do that and I say, hey, I'd like to free up 30% of your calendar so you can get more done. Are you willing to do a little bit of work to free up a third of your time? And I mean, to a person, they're going to raise their hand and say yes, right? So what I figured out is a way to do it is to say, we can keep you from doing low value work or status update type work so that we visualize the truth all the time. Remember I said visualization is important and we can understand the prioritization all the time. So from your perspective and your experience, John, what what has that story been for you to get people to understand how to buy in? Well, I, I remember one example where I was working in an agency and I was VP of marketing and, and running operations. And in working with the team, you know, I often got feedback from them once we started using Agile that the folks, the creative folks uh, in the process, the marketers were able to uh, better understand what was coming down the pike. Uh, they were able to have enough time to do the work. And as a result, uh, you know, the the throughput of work went went up uh, dramatically. We spent less time on on having update meetings and more time on actually doing the work as a result. Right. So, yeah. Right. And it's easy to point to that as a, as a success measurement because people understand time. They understand the time measurement piece of it. And if you can correlate time savings with productivity gains and better outcomes, even better, right? So now you can quantify not only how many hours saved, but what was the total benefit from saving those hours? Because there's a double whammy here. Not only do you stop the stupid and get people out of the low value stuff, they are potentially freed up for high value work. So it's a double. You're not only not doing that thing, you're now doing better high quality work and delivering value, greater value more frequently. There's not a downside to this. And agility helps us have a way of working. It's a way of doing that. And we leverage OKRs as a management system to say, do we know we have clarity with alignment and that we're learning and pivoting and iterating frequently enough? And are we freeing our people up to go do that? And for to listen, big key, do we have the feedback loops in place 
to hear them so that we know how to respond to our teams, our business partners, and our clients. Do we understand what it's going to take to be more successful? No, but do they? Probably. So we want to constantly have that feedback loop. And now we get just better and better. So now you have a flywheel effect. It's it, The momentum is very hard to start, but once you get going, now it's, it's momentum building and it goes very fast. So this is some of that value thinking about how do you get there is you have to start with what are you going to get rid of? Because you can't just have an additive approach. Subtraction is more important right at this point than than addition or multiplication. If you don't subtract the stupid, you will multiply it when you scale. We don't want to do that. No, indeed. And, you know, in this discussion, I, I think the core one core element here is thinking about the challenges that marketers have. And what's interesting is that discussion around impediments, not only uh, within the marketing teams, but across stakeholders can uh, can have a dramatic effect. I mean, you talked about sales teams being agile sales and marketers being agile marketing. You know, uh, over the last couple of years, I've been doing more ABM, account-based marketing, especially mm-hmm. with agencies. And I'm seeing the use of agile by uh, by the sales team to the point where actually the marketing team isn't doing it yet, but the sales team is. And 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 I'm kind of wondering if there you, you know it's going to actually increase the amount of adoption by marketers. But I I also think there's this dynamic, and I I don't understand it because I even though I always wanted to be a marketer when I grew up, but I started in sales and then made that transition over to marketing and achieved that goal. But I, I don't understand why sometimes there's this dynamic and conflict. I mean, I think some of it relates to some of the criticisms of content marketing where, you know, you're giving me too many leads and they're not qualified leads. So I can certainly understand that. But I, I think, you know, the way to solve that is for each of the stakeholders sales to say, hey, I have an impediment here. You give me too many you know, poor leads. How do we how do we resolve that issue and the marketers working with them? But how do you, I mean, how do you see some of those problems, especially when it comes to this idea of you know, sales and marketing being able to work better together. Yeah. So I I said earlier that I believe there's agile sales with agile marketing or agile marketing with agile sales. And the key there is with not and, because what I'm trying to say is if we have clarity and alignment on whom we're serving and the way we're doing that, then we have shared objectives. An objective is the way to create and deliver value for the benefit of the client. That's what an objective is. Then the key result is how would we measure progress towards achieving that objective and by when so measurable and time bound so when you do that the marketing measurables are going to be different from the sales measurables why because one comes before the other right so if it's in inbound sales you're not going to get the inbound directly to your sales and come through marketing it's going to come through the website it's going to come through social it's going to come through one of the channels and so you have to have in my opinion an alignment of that to say, are we serving the same people? Are we understanding the same journey? Are we creating the same experience? Because, and I make this joke all the time, I've said it, you know, multiple places, but it's probably worth repeating because it's just so true. No prospect will ever come to your site, John, never come to one of the listener sites and say, you know, today would be a great day to be targeted with um, particular ads. And then I would love to get into a drip and nurture campaign so that I could be pre-qualified by a salesperson who could hand me off to a business partner so that I can get a quote to buy this product. But that's exactly what happens in most B2B sales organizations, right? We don't 
overtly say that to them, but they sure do feel it. And what I'm saying is by aligning sales with marketing, marketing with sales, the client doesn't feel that. They just feel their experience with the brand. So if they come to the IBM site, I want them to have an IBM experience that benefits them, not a IBM marketing experience and then an IBM sales experience and then an IBM business partner experience, right? I, I want it just to be a great IBM experience. And, and that is an intentional focus by saying, are we aligned? Do we share those things? Because we're trying to aim for the same outcomes, even when our outputs are different. We have different roles. One of the things this does is you bring them together. You physically do what's called teaming. I may have a sales team and a marketing team, for example, but I would have a teaming opportunity to bring them together, certain individuals together to have representation for both at, with the brand, by the way, with the product owners and talk about, hey, here's what sales is learning. Here's what marketing learning. Here's, here's what we're seeing in the market space. And now what we're doing is having everybody held accountable to the same outcomes which is what's in it for the client. When you do that, you will have less finger pointing of if you would just give us better quality leads. Well, if you would follow up with leads we have, right? You don't have to have that. That that finger pointing can literally go away because now that's my friend. That's my partner. That's the person helping me be successful. And we listen and respect each other. How? Because we have a shared set of understandings on the same outcomes and you'll have your discrete outputs and I'll have my discrete outputs, but we're all questioning together, is this delivering the value that our prospects and clients need? And that just makes for a very different work environment and a far better customer experience. What are some of the other uh, problems in marketing? You know, I, we just talked about these few, you know, I, I see technology. I mean, that's the big one. And certainly been over the last 20 years where you think where technology was in marketing and how much it's come and, and it's mm -hmm. still flowing. And then mm -hmm. there's also the issues of, you know, you look at the McKinsey report about CMOs leave, leaving after, was it 2.1 years? Oh my goodness, they're being asked yeah. to leave. But I, but I also wonder if the bigger issue of mid-level managers having a bigger role to play in how companies structure marketing operations, you know, is, is, is some, is it somewhat, is the key to having the CMO work with their mid-level manager to come up with strategy and implementation. What and if they were to do that, question. will they then be able to stay around longer? So I think what's beautiful about the model that um, we've put in place, which is where the, cast, the, 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 the strategy doesn't cascade, it loops. So in a cascade, there's a top, goes down to middle, goes down to the middle lower, and then down to the bottom, right? So there's a cascade, think of like a waterfall kind of effect. And that's a top-down command and control environment. Do what the highest paid person in the room said. So does a mid-level manager have a bigger role to play? Yes, everybody actually has a bigger role to play. But And so I'm gonna talk about it from two scenarios. One, what if you flattened that? What if it wasn't a pyramid top-down? What if you turned it sideways? And you said there are different layers of authority and responsibility, but good ideas come from anywhere. So the first time a goal is set and then a strategy is, is brought along with it from executives saying, here's the go-to-market strategy for achieving this goal. Very common, right? Well, in most organizations, that's a mandate. You hit it or else. What we're trying to say is, no, 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 they loop. They don't cascade. So the goal may be X. And the strategy to go to market was we're going to take this and, and go on this road trip and we're going to go from here to Chicago and great. And we go, okay, we're learning because we use GPS 
as we go, that turns out going through Kansas City was way more cost effective. And we had a whole subset of, of, of market penetration there that we didn't even think was possible. We met a bunch of folks like there's better opportunity there for this particular product and service in this market. We learned that on our way. So the second time we go, we don't actually need to go spend as much time in Chicago, or maybe we don't go at all this next time. Maybe we just go back to Kansas City and the surrounding areas. And I'm using this kind of GPS analogy because in, in the past, we used to, what you're describing with the strategy cascading is, here is the map with the turn-by-turn -turn instructions, be there by this time or else, right? <laughs> and you better achieve. What we're saying is, you may have an initial strategy, that's great. We're going to go test, measure, and validate if that works and what we learn about that. Because we don't assume you're right. Don't assume you're wrong either. We just don't know. So we're going to come back with data and insight to give you, hey, that strategy, not bad. We learned something even better while doing this. So here's our recommendation and here's the data to support that. What do you think about? And now it becomes a group. So every time after the version 1.0 strategy, that strategy comes from everybody from all levels. And then the other piece of this is that middle manager. So in typical management, people are looking to inspect the work and ensure that we have compliance. This is a very common management methodology from the 20th century. Inspect the work and make sure you have compliance. I want to shift that. And what we do is say, we don't want to inspect the work with managers. We want to understand the work, which means we ask questions. We don't make statements. We don't say, did you do this thing? You better get this done. We say, hey, what are you learning about that? How is that going for you? How is that performing? What are we doing that's working and not working? We're very curious. Then the other thing the manager does is that compliance, right? Where they're like, well, if I've instructed you and I've inspected it, now I'm telling you what to do. Make sure you do this. Well, what instead what we're saying is, hey, how do I support you? I think maybe we could skill you up in this area or we think we could partner you with this other person or maybe we could provide this resource to help you. And now what they're doing is skilling up the person and trying to understand how they can remove impediments and skill them up. Full stop. In other words, they're serving those that they're in their span of care. They're not telling them what to do and making sure it was done. Now they're seeking to understand and support, not inspect and get compliance. So there's a two piece thing. When you do that at scale, guess what happens with your executives? They have far better data and far better insight to make decisions. So it's less on them to be the wise person at the top who's making calling all the shots and having to be the hero and figure it all out and take all the credit, right? Which they last 2.1 years because what human can do that consistently? Not many, and especially at the rate of change today. So instead, we're saying we democratize our learning and now it's a shared model. So the CMO still has vision, authority and all that, that doesn't change, but they're far more invested now in listening to go, what are we learning? Not what are we accomplishing? Because if you learn faster, you will accomplish more and better over time. If you're not learning faster, good luck. You may do it well this time. You may not next time it's hit or miss. We want to mitigate that risk by experimenting so small, so frequently, learning, asking better questions, empowering those doing the work, supporting and encouraging my understanding that what we roll up to our CMO now is not more data, but more insight, more recommended actions, more understanding, because you can make far better decisions with that kind of data than you can with a pure metric. That's what I think needs to happen from a technology, structure, communication, mid-level and CMO level uh, reporting.
So back to IBM, what, what's the story with the agile market uh, mindset? How can IBM expand on what's already been done, do you think? Yeah, so I did a roadmap of um, uh, five phases to, to, to get us from where we first started to where we could go, specifically with digital sales tying in with marketing. And that's been my focus, which is why I'm in the role I'm in, uh, working with the digital sales teams. And globally, this has been an interesting challenge because you've got the distinct uniqueness of each geography, um, each market, each where the products sell well, where they don't, where which markets, you know, et cetera. So it's, there's a lot of complexity. And when you base it down to outcomes, the complexity doesn't disappear. It just becomes more simplified and more understandable. It doesn't mean it's not complex. It just doesn't have to be confusing. And so we're creating that clarity with alignment and you find that the teams are able to make a much better informed decisions at the team level without needing a manager to make a decision without having to go up to a GM or uh, an executive or the CMO because we've empowered people. We, we trust them. They're smart. They're capable. What can we do to serve them? So it's that it's that sideways pyramid kind of thing was, yes, there are different levels of authority and hierarchy, John, but we're less impressed with that. We're more impressed with who, who serves well and at what level can we do that at? And how do we scale the things that work? How do we learn what worked on one team in one part of the business and share it with a te another team in an entirely different part of the business? Because the principles are the same. And, and that's the stuff that really gets people's attention, especially in an executive role, because they have a very large span of care, especially in an enterprise. So when you start to connect those dots and make those aha moments bubble up, we're representing insight and recommended actions, not data and metrics. I don't want to show them a chart with data and metrics. I want to show them a dashboard with insights and recommended actions because we've done the hard work of getting to the place where that's visible, understandable, shareable. And I think that's part of the future of sales with marketing rather than in agile sales with agile marketing rather than sales and marketing. Makes sense. Makes sense. I, I, you know, I think it's very true that, you know, it really has to be a partnership. And when you see uh, practices like uh, account-based marketing, uh, you know, come to the fore, it also has a methodology that brings, you know, the marketing and salespeople to, mm -hmm. together. But uh, I think if you're adding in agile, both for sales and, and marketing, it's going to even make that partnership even stronger. So it'd be interesting to see how uh, it develops. Last question, what, what advice do you give to other marketing leaders in adopting agile for marketing? It's a good question because it kind of depends on the situation of who I'm talking to. But if I had to say, lead people in a way to develop them into the best version of themselves, be more interested in who they are than what they do. Because as individuals and teams, if you go to serve them and what they need, this is a hallmark of agility, right? Is it's what is the team telling us? What is the team understanding? What are the individuals learning? If you do that, they're going to perform better which means all the things you're responsible for will perform better over time. So you, you've got to think about how to align, coordinate, communicate amongst in between leaders, teams, and operations. So if you want to do that, you have to have a way. And what I'm describing is the way, a way to do that. Lots of space in the middle, a lot of white space to figure out how you would apply that, but very clear boundaries and, and constraints around the edges because uh, if, you, if you just say anything goes, then you're not really going anywhere. Like what's the old adage? Uh, if you don't have a destination, any road will get you there. So we do have a destination. We do have a way of going. So there are some constraints, but those are constraints are made uh, to protect, 
not to control. And, and there's the big difference is that we're really focused on how do you inspire people and manage them in clarity of work and the removal of obstacles and skilling them up so that they develop into the best version of themselves. If you do that, you're going to get far better results, but you have to model and be that truth. It can't be a nice sticky on the wall that says, we believe X, and then it's not lived out. Your culture is what you observe. So is it observable? Is it demonstrable? And those are things that are super important. So a culture where there's an equal balance between account accountability and autonomy, that should be the way we go. Anthony, great. This has been a, a great conversation, and I really appreciate you joining us today for the deep dive into Agile marketing. John, thank you. Thank you very much. It's always fun to share uh, different things that have worked, didn't work, what I'm learning. I, I love learning from others, so I hope there's some takeaways for your audience members today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on the deep dive into Agile marketing with John Cass. My thanks to Anthony, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Deep Dive into Agile Marketing Podcast. Be sure and subscribe to our show and leave a review to let us know what you thought of today's episode. And if you like what you heard and want to learn more, visit www.businessagility.institute.